uh, I think most people in evangelicalism, when they see a squirrel, thinks of Gene Clyde. It's really strange when you think about it. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. Good to have you with us here. It is Tuesday, the 31st day of January, last day of the month. February begins tomorrow. And that means... We're just a month away from Shepherd's Conference. I will be there. I hope to see many of you there. If you're going to be at Shepherd's Conference, drop me a note at scrollchatter at protonmail.com and let's make sure we, we get a chance to, to meet up and say hi while we're down there. Tour the book tent together. You can buy me stuff. It's great. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, well, kind of. Um, <laughs> This is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated primarily to the public reading of Scripture and secondarily to my thoughts on various topics of the day, and that's the old lead-in. <laughs> We're a month into the new year, and I've just now reverted to type. This is a podcast dedicated to Scripture, history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. And we webcast Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. Mountain on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch. And then the audio podcast can be downloaded uh, wherever you find podcasts. So Spotify, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Bob's Podcast Emporium. You can find us everywhere. And we are a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. Head on over to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. There's plenty of good stuff. Very much plenty of good stuff. Um, the last episode of um, Voice of Reason Radio was just really good. I would commend that to you. And uh, Chris Huff at uh, Matter of Theology has been dropping some good stuff these last few weeks. They are not alone. There's plenty of stuff over there. Like I said, there's over 50 podcasts, so you're sure to find something worth listening to. All right, well, it is Tuesday, and so we are resuming our study Bible level Bible study of Deuteronomy, and today we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 12 through 29. So we're, we're going to get through Chapter 3 to the end of the chapter. And uh, I'm, I'm being ambitious. We're going to try to finish the chapter. I'll try not to get too terribly long-winded. <laughs> uh, well, winter has stuck around here in the Piney Woods. Uh, the current temperature outside is 4 degrees, which is 12 degrees warmer than it was yesterday because it was 8 below when I got up. Um, but it did snow lightly overnight, and I am hearing that the roads are really nasty. And later today I have to uh, go into Missoula, so I am hoping that by the time I leave Squirrel Manor, the roads may have improved. Um, in either case, I'll be going slow <laughs> and paying attention to the roads. But we had, uh, they're saying it's snow on top of ice, so that, that is a slick condition. Um, very slick condition. 
So pray for the people that are traveling in this weather. And there seems to be a, a bout of bad weather all across the country. Um, my uh, Monday night class at GBTS met entirely by Zoom last night. Normally, most of the people are in the classroom, and then a few of us who are distance learners log in by Zoom. But apparently they had about a bad weather in Conway, Arkansas last night. And so they elected to do the entire class by Zoom. And uh, Dr. Johnson conducted the class from the laundry room at his house. I'm going to have to ask him why. But uh, I think it's probably the, the only room that he could <laughs> get some privacy in. And, uh, and that's just the way of it. <laughs> so... Let us begin, as is our practice, with the prayer of confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now our prayer for the reading of the word. Blessed Lord, who hast caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as I said, today we are in Deuteronomy chapter 3, picking up in verse 12. Now, Moses is recounting the history of the conquest, actually the, the beginning with the Exodus in, in the, the first three chapters of Deuteronomy. And so we have, we have seen the, the rebellion of the Israelites who refused to enter the promised land when commanded by God. And God's judgment upon them was that they would not be allowed to enter the promised land. They would they would uh, that Israel would wander in the wilderness until that entire generation had died off, and so now that has happened, and Moses has related how they have come to the edge of the promised land and begun to conquer the territories west or east of the Jordan River, um, the territories of of Sihon and Og. Uh, these two kings who are east of the Jordan. So picking up in verse 12, Moses says, So we took possession of this land at that time. From Aror, which is by the valley of Arnon, and half of the hill country of Gilead and its cities I gave to the Rumanites and to the Gadites. And the rest of Gilead and all of Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh, all the region of Argob, Concerning all Bashan, it is called the land of Rephaim. 
Jer, the son of Manasseh, took all the region of Argob as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Maacathites, and called it what it what is, and called it that is Bashan after his own name, Havoth Jer, as it is to this day. And to Machir I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and to the Gadites I gave from Gilead even as far as the valley of Arnon, the middle of the valley as a border, and as far as the river Jabok, the border of the sons of Ammon. The Arabah also with the Jordan as, its, as a border from Kinnereth even as far as the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah, on the east. So here we need to think about the tribes of Israel. And of course this is found in in Genesis. Abraham's grandson Jacob was also called Israel. Israel means struggled with God and if there's not a better name for a nation, I can't think of one because this is a nation with a history of rebellion and struggling against God. So Jacob was given the name Israel, and Jacob had 12 sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Nephtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, and Benjamin. And yes, I wrote all those down because I don't remember things like that. I remember when I was high school, I had to remember the dwarves in The Hobbit for a class. And that was, I, personal note, <laughs> my form of dyslexia. Um, not only does it mess with my spelling and stuff like that, it messes with my ability to remember. Um, especially rote memory, things like names. So... I will ask repeatedly what your name is and try to learn it, but it's not going to uh, necessarily come easy to me, just so you know. Um, so yes, I wrote down the 12 sons of Jacob. Now these 12 sons are the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. So when Scripture talks about Israel, we need to remember this is not talking generally of descendants of Abraham. It's talking specifically of descendants of Jacob. This is noteworthy in the New Testament when Paul is talking about Abraham being saved by faith and therefore being the father of all who believe both the circumcised and the uncircumcised in, in the book of Romans. All believers are spiritual children of Abraham by faith. Only physical descendants of Jacob are Israel. And too often I see that conflated in people's writings and, and in people's thoughts and speech. There's a distinction. And so while the church is called the spiritual children of Abraham, you know, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. So 
we know that, that those who believe are spiritual children of Abraham. But at the same time, those who believe who are not descended of Jacob are never called Israel. And we can dispute that. We can talk about that. And there's, there's a verse, there's one instance in Galatia, in Galatians, that people point to and say, ah, ah see there, that has to be referring to the church. I don't think it does. And if we ever get there, we can, we can talk about that when we're there. But the 12 tribes of Israel are descended from the 12 sons of Israel. So this is the division of Israel into 12 tribes. It goes back to the 12 sons of Israel. Now, Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And their half-tribes are counted also, as we see here. So they are considered tribes of Israel, but more specifically, they're actually half-tribes because they are each half of the tribe of Joseph. But nowhere do you, do you at least I don't think so. I didn't look at all the, the tribe lists before doing today's podcast, but as far as I can recall, at no point in any of the tribe lists is the tribe of Joseph listed. But the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim are listed. And so we see that. And then there's, there's different tribe lists, and they list different tribes at different times and for different reasons. And that's a whole different study and that's a little bit deeper than, than we're planning on going here. But uh, Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. They are also counted among the tribes of Israel. Now, Numbers 32 and 34 record the awarding of these lands east of the Jordan River to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. And so it's pretty detailed. The plan originally had been that the land wasn't going to be divided until after the conquest was complete. But after the defeats of uh, Sihon and Og east of the Jordan, and, and we read that God gave that land to, to Israel, um, which and, and if you go back to... Uh, is it Genesis 15 that gives us the borders of the promised land? It is, you know, it was always part of the promised land. So when they got there, it was given to, um, given to Israel. And then these two tribes, while they had, the, it wasn't, the land wasn't going to be divided until after the com completion of the conquest. But these three tribes, or two and a half tribes, petitioned Moses to be given this land. They wanted this territory to be their inheritance. And like I said, you can go back to, to Numbers, Numbers 32 and Numbers 34 and look at all the details of that. But in order to be given this land as an inheritance, they had to promise to help the rest of Israel with the conquest. So they're saying, okay, you can settle in this land, but you're going to have to cross the Jordan and help the other tribes 
conquer their land. And we see that here in verse verse 18. But that was a condition, shall we say, of getting their allotment early, that they had to promise to, to fulfill that, that they couldn't just, okay, we got our houses, we're good, you guys go do your thing. No, they had to promise to help. Deuteronomy 3, verse 18. Then I commanded you at that time, saying, Yahweh your God has given you this land to possess it. All you men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the sons of Israel. But your wives and your little ones and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in your cities which I have given you until Yahweh gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also possess the land which Yahweh your God will give them beyond the Jordan. Then you may return every man to his possession which I have given you. So the military men of these tribes pledged to cross the Jordan and help uh, secure the land for the other tribes. Meanwhile, their families and their livestock, their possessions would begin to settle the lands east of the Jordan. And as I said, it's all detailed in numbers. And I know that a lot of this stuff seems tedious to us. When you look at these lists, we, we, there, there are a great many lists. I mean, numbers is named numbers because it contains a lot of lists of numbers. How many people were in each tribe and each division of a tribe and... You know, I guess we got tribes and clans, and and I'm not sure how how all that works. <laughs> not a not an expert on tribal culture, but how tribes are divided up. But we see all of these lists, and it's lists of who settled where, and what were the borders of the different territories, which cities were given to each tribe, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems to us tedious as we read it. And don't get me started on all the names that are hard to pronounce. You've already heard me stumbling this morning. And many of you were amused hearing me stumble over a lot of those names last year as we were reading through the whole scripture. I got the notes on Facebook and Twitter. I got the emails. You were laughing at me. Nobody, nobody seemed to really... Uh, take offense at my stumbling over the names. It just seems to have been amusing. Well, it's just as amusing to me. But uh, this stuff is important for us to know. It's important for us to know for a couple of reasons. First, you know, for Israel, it was important to know what the borders were and what the territories were and the history behind that. So it had great practical application throughout the history of the kingdom of Israel prior to the conquest. So we are the Babylonian conquest, the Babylonian captivity. So it's important there and it's important at the end of the conquest because there was territories that needed to be returned to members of those tribes. So it had practical consequences and practical purposes in, in history, but it also has consequences for us, or at least importance for us. 
as you know, remember all scripture is God breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that includes these tedious lists. So there's something here for us um, to teach us, to correct us from error, and to train us in righteousness. Now, I do admit that some areas of Scripture are more useful for these purposes than other, but all of it is profitable because it's all the Word of God. And so we need to think about these lists and these allotments and these apportionments and what all that means. And so this is kind of my thoughts on that. God is a God of details. He is a God of the whole world. He's a God of the universe. But he's also God of individual families, individual households, individual people. And in his omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence, he pays just as much attention to the small as to the great, because he is a God of details. He's a God of the big picture, obviously, but he's also a God of the individual details. As R.C. Sproul used to always say, and it's a quote that is just a, a good reminder about the absolute sovereignty of God. And I've got Dr. Johnson's new book on the sovereignty of God right down here. I haven't picked it up yet. I'm looking forward to reading that. But God is absolutely sovereign over everything in the universe. And R.C. Sproul used to always say that there's not a molecule that isn't exactly where and when God assigned it to be. There's not a rogue molecule in all of the universe. Now, try to wrap your mind around that, and you'll get a headache, and you'll be on the couch with a washcloth over your forehead not, after not too very long to understand just how absolutely sovereign God is over everything. But he's sovereign about the big picture, and he's sovereign about the details. And so these details are given to us to show us the care with which God placed not only Israel in the promised land, but each of the tribes in their territory and each of the families within the tribes in their homes, their cities, their towns, their farmsteads, you know, all the way down to the individual level. God is as attentive at every level that you want to look at. And so these lists give us a great deal of detail where God is focusing in on not just the whole nation, but individual parts of the nation. And we can take from that that God has taken just as much care about where you live and about where I live and about the work we do, all of that, as he did for ancient Israel. Because he's not just the God of Israel. And, and often when we read the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is focused on 
God's special relationship with Israel and on redemptive history as he traces, you know, Scripture in the Old Testament traces from, you know, Adam and Eve through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah, through David, through Solomon, all the way down to Jesus. He gives us the, the, the tracing of the genealogy of Jesus' humanity. So we see this tracing of redemptive history, but that's not all that's there. There's a lot written about the other nations, and we often lose sight of that. Now, a lot of it's judgment, but a lot of what's written about Israel is judgment, too, because all men are sinful. But at the same time, we can come away understanding that God has a purpose, not only for Israel, but for Egypt, for Babylon, for Cleveland. He is the God of the whole earth, the whole universe. And so we can't lose sight of the fact that even while the Old Testament scriptures are focused in quite a bit on God's working in and through Israel. It's not all God's doing. God is absolutely as detailed in everything else going on on the planet. And so while Israel does have a special place, a unique situation, it's not alone in being under the attentions of God. So we can look at these details and we can understand that God is just as careful about we are. See, he has put us where and when we are. You know, he determined where we would be born. He determined who our parents would be. He would be determined when we would be born. Um, a friend of mine just had, had a little daughter. She was born was it Saturday. I'd have to go back and look. But she was born at 4.55 in the morning. God determined that. Knew exactly when she would be born. Knew exactly who her parents would be. He determined all of that. And he has determined all the details of your life and my life as well. And he's done all of this with care and purpose. And, and, and he will achieve all of his good purposes. His great wisdom, his, his great knowledge, and his purposes are being worked out. Consider the letter that Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in Babylon. And it's in Jeremiah 29. Picking up in verse 4, this is what Jeremiah wrote. Remember, Jeremiah is, is still in Jerusalem. And he's writing to the exiles who are in Babylon. So this is in the... the uh, between, you know, sometime in the, the between 605 and uh, 586 B.C. Um, so we would say late 6th, early 7th centuries B.C. And this was a letter that, that he wrote to the exiles because there were false prophets in 
Babylon, telling the Israelites who were there in captivity that they were soon going to be restored, that that this was not, they were not going to be there for a long time, this was going to be a short time, God was going to restore the nation, everything. And so, you know, God causes Jeremiah to write him a letter basically saying, okay, you're going to be there at least 70 years. And the reason you're going to be there 70 years is there were 490 years when Israel did not observe the yearly Sabbath. There was supposed to be one year out of seven when they didn't plant crops and they didn't plow the ground, that everything was to be allowed to go fallow for the health of the ground. I mean, God had commanded this. And God had said on the sixth year, he would provide twice as much so that they would have the food to carry them into the, through the seventh year until they could plant again on the first year of the cycle uh, again at the end of the seventh year. And they had not done that. And so they owed God 70 years of Sabbath rest for the land. And, and he says through Jeremiah, my land will have its rest. Israel is going to be in exile for 70 years. Um, it's reading that portion of Jeremiah in uh, um, Daniel chapter 9 that Daniel realizes that the time of the exile is coming to an end, which would put Daniel somewhere in his mid to late 80s when that happened because he was among the first deportee, de, deportees, uh, among the first people deported in 605 B.C., so he had been there for that entire 70-year period, and he was a teenager when he was sent there. So, you know, he's in his mid-80s at that time, but he was reading the prophet Jeremiah when he read, oh, 70 years, and it's almost up. Look at that. So this is what um, Jeremiah wrote. This is Jeremiah 29, picking up in verse 4. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters. And multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to Yahweh on its behalf. For in its peace you will have peace. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to your dreams which you dream. For they prophesy a lie to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares Yahweh. So his false prophets then are the, the ones who are saying that their exile was going to be short. And so Jeremiah says, you know, God through Jeremiah says, no, don't listen to them. They are lying. I did not send them. Here's the deal. I sent you to Babylon. And I want you to settle there. I want you to dwell there. I want you to build houses. I want you to have kids. I want your kids to have kids. I want the Israelites in exile to multiply and grow in number. 
So even in the midst of the uh, exile, he is telling them that he is going to bless them with, with growth as a nation. Did the same thing in Egypt, by the way. They, that was a period of great growth for the nation of Israel. So we can see here from this letter to Jeremiah that it is God who determines where we live. And we are to live there as God's people. Loving God, loving our neighbor. Um, Jeremiah 29, 7, Seek the peace of the city where I have sent you and pray to Yahweh on its behalf. For in its peace you will have peace. So seek the, the peace. Um, other translations say seek the welfare. Um, I'd have to fire up my Bible software and look at what the actual Hebrew says there. But it's seek the well-being. Seek the prosperity of the place where you live. This is loving your neighbor. This is common grace. That Christians seek the good of the people who live around them. And the reason is that in their prosperity, God's people find prosperity. Um, to uh, paraphrase John F. Kennedy, although he was talking about tax policies in the, in the American economy, his point is well applicable here. A rising tide lifts all boats. <laughs> so as an economy improves... That, and as a society improves, that improves the lives of all the people who are in the society. Um, in a lot of ways, we have lost sight of that. Um, American individualism is seeking what's good for me, not seeking what's good for my neighbor. And we have lost sight of the fact that by seeking the good of our neighbor, a, we're obeying God's commandments, but B, we're seeking our own good. Now, there are principles to apply here and, and all sorts of other things that we could talk about, about what that means. But the point I wanted to make is that you know, as just as God wrote to, through Jeremiah, wrote to the exiles in Babylon, and he said, this is the city where I have sent you. God has sent you where you are. God has sent me where I am. And we are to be about what God has told us to do until he sends us somewhere else or takes us home. And, you know, he will move us around and, and, and that's fine. I, I certainly haven't always lived in this house. <laughs> I haven't always lived in this state. Um, have lived all of my adult life in this state, but you know, my dad brought me out here when I was 11, along with my mom and my two sisters, and a dog named Nipper. It was a sweet dog, Sheltie. Sheltie's are great dogs. My, my oldest sister um, still keeps Sheltie's because of, and, and in a lot of ways, Nipper was her dog. Um, he was the family dog, but he was her dog. And so she still keeps Shelties. But yeah, you know, 19, January 1977, middle of winter, my dad moved his family to Montana. And so, you know, but that was a, an act of God's providence. You know, and there's so many things 
that have happened because I've lived here that wouldn't have happened if I'd lived somewhere else. I have different friends. I have a different wife. I have, you know, if I had never come to Montana, Janet and I wouldn't be married. I wouldn't have the daughter I have and the granddaughter I have because, you know, God connects all those dots. Um, there's no chance random process any in the, anywhere in the world. As in, and God has connected all those dots for you too. And, and so he is the sovereign God who is meticulous about the details not just the details of ancient Israel, but the details of your life and my life. Okay, back to Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 21. Moses says, And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that Yahweh your God has done to these two kings. So Yahweh shall do to all the kingdoms into which you are about to cross. Do not fear them, for Yahweh your God is the one fighting for you. Now, we had seen that the conquest of Sihon and the conquest of Og had gone well because God was with them. Um, we read that, that God had gone before them and put the fear of them in the people that they were going to, to fight. And so this... This is in, you know, they still had to go fight the battles. But in a lot of ways, it's like one of the, <laughs> if you've ever watched Charlton Heston in Ben-Hur, Cecil B. DeMille's told the story about how there were times when Charlton Heston would just obsess over scenes. And one of the scenes that he was obsessing over was the chariot race. And he kept coming to Cecil B. DeMille with, with questions and everything. Finally, DeMille had had enough of it. And he said, Chuck, just stay in the chariot. I can guarantee you you're going to win the race. <laughs> and that, you know, because how, how did we know that Ben-Hur was going to win the chariot race? Because that was what was in the script, and that was what the director was going to accomplish <laughs> as he made the movie. So, same thing. We're told what to do. God's going to make sure it turns out correctly. And so, that was the way in the conquest. It says, you're, you're going to have to go fight the battles, but I guarantee you're going to win. Because Yahweh, your God, is the one fighting for you as Moses said. Now Moses now turns from the tribes of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh to Joshua, who's going to be leading the Israelites into the conquest. And he's, he's giving, the, giving him encouragement. He's saying, you know, God's going to fight for you. You're not going to have to do this on your own. Um, you're, you're going to see the hand of God just as the hand of God delivered Israel from Egypt, the hand of God is going to deliver them into the promised land. And, and so this is a, an encouragement to him that, you know, and, and we see that in the opening chapters of Joshua when they capture the city of Jericho. And we all know that story that, you know, the, 
the marched around it once once a day for seven days and then seven times on the or once a day for six days then seven times on the seventh day i think um i'd have to go back and read it for the details but we see the mighty hand of god that you know the walls fell down they fell outward and archaeology has has confirmed this um you can't really trust the dating of secular archaeologists but the 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 physical um, remnants of the city show that the walls fell down and the walls fell outward, which provided entry into the city for the Israelites who then destroyed the city. So we have this um, picture of God fighting for Israel. So so what Moses is saying to, to Joshua here is exactly what Joshua is going to be experiencing in just a few weeks or months. Now God has forbidden Moses from crossing the Jordan. And this is due to Moses' disobedience. Now the, the incident that, that led to God forbidding Moses from 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 entering into the promised land is recorded back in Numbers 20. Here at the end of chapter 3, Moses is praying to God to lift that prohibition. But the incident is Numbers 20. And uh, just to read from there, Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh. And Miriam, that's Moses' sister, died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had breathed our last when our brothers breathed their last before Yahweh. Why then have you brought the assembly of Yahweh into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? And why have you made us come up from Egypt? to bring us into this evil place. It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. This is a common refrain from the Israelites to Moses. Did, did you and God just bring us all the way out here to die? They say that repeatedly, which is amazing because every morning they're collecting and eating manna from heaven. They had seen all the miracles of the Exodus, all of that. Yet this is their constant refrain, it seems like. So verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron came in front of the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of Yahweh appeared to them, and Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Now listen to what God commands. Take the rod... And you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So take the rod, speak to the rock, and it'll give forth water for the congregation. So Moses took the rod from before Yahweh just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels, 
Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses raised high his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel contended with Yahweh and he proved himself holy among them. So God had told Moses to speak to the rock and it would give up the water. Moses instead spoke to the people in anger and struck the rock. Now, I think all of us could can read what the people were saying and understand Moses' anger. But Moses' anger was not God's anger. And in the way Moses approached it, he stole glory from God. Because he and Aaron are standing there and he says, Shall we bring forth water from this rock? And he says it in anger. God is going to bring forth the water from the rock. And God was not angry. And so Moses had misrepresented God to the people. He had failed in his duty as a prophet in this instance. And that failure led to God forbidding him from entering the promised land. Not only him, but Aaron also. Listen to Deuteronomy 32, beginning in verse 48. And Yahweh spoke to Moses that very day, saying, Go up to this mountain of the, er of, of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for a possession. Then die on the mountain where you ascend and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hur, and was gathered to his people. Because you both acted unfaithfully with me in the midst of the son of, of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you both did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I am giving to the sons of Israel. So this is why Moses is forbidden. He had misrepresented God to Israel. He had made the Israelites believe that God was angry with them, when at that time he wasn't. And, and while they were already under the judgment of God, yes, they were wandering in the wilderness, all of that, and yes, that generation was going to die off. But still... God was preserving them and keeping them, not in anger, but as a loving father provides for his children. Your kid may get grumpy, but you still feed him lunch. You know, and, and, and so that was the picture of God as the loving provider, yet that's not how Moses portrayed it to the people. And for that reason... 
he was forbidden from entering into the promised land. Now, here at the end of chapter 3 of Deuteronomy, he is praying to God that God would relent and allow him to enter the promised land. This is what he says, verse 23. I also pleaded with Yahweh at that time, saying, O Lord Yahweh, you have begun to show your slave your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Let me, I pray, cross over and see the good land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But Yahweh was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. And Yahweh said to me, Enough! Speak to me no more of this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes to the west and north and south and east and see it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan. But command Joshua and strengthen him and encourage him, for he shall go across at the head of this people, and he will cause them to inherit the land which you will see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. So here God is saying, you know, no, don't talk about it anymore. This is a, a firm decision from God. He is not going to relent on this. Moses's time is up. Now, Moses by this time is in his 120s, right? I think that's right. Yeah, because he was, he was 40 when he left Egypt. He was 80 when he was called at the burning bush, and he had now wandered, you know, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years with the, the Israelites. So he's, you know, 120 plus. And his time had come. It was now time for another to lead Israel. So Moses and, and, and the rest of, you know, this, he's, he's recounting this history to the Israelites because this is the end for him. And so he is doing two things. God call, told him to strengthen and encourage Joshua. Now, Joshua has been with Moses since the Exodus. And he has been... Moses's right hand, his executive assistant, his chief of staff, whatever you want to call him. A lot of what God had told Moses to do, Moses had told Joshua to take care of. Um, he was his executive officer. And now, as Moses is passing away, Joshua is going to be leading Israel. So he was, he was Moses's heir in that sense. Not Moses' physical heir. Moses had children, but Joshua was not among them. But as far as the his, his successor in leadership of Israel, it was Joshua. Chosen by God, placed there. He spent 40 years walking by Moses' side. He has been walking with Moses is Moses walked with God, which means he's been walking with God. And he is the person that God has chosen to take Moses' place. And so God is commanding Moses 
to to strengthen and encourage Joshua. And he's also said he says to Moses, command Joshua and strengthen him and encourage him. So Moses is is to give Joshua final instructions. Um and strengthen him and encourage him. It's really important for us to think about who comes after us, not just in, you know, our family life, you know, training up our own children, that's important. But if you have a job, which most of us do, because <laughs> we have bills to pay, if you have a job, the training and encouragement of those who are coming after is very important. It's something that's very important for the continuation of society. Now, in this instance, we're talking about a religious and political leader, but, you know, it also applies to the assistant manager at the restaurant when you're the manager. And I've seen it time and time again that far too often people are threatened by the success of others. People are threatened by the ability of others. And so sometimes they, they work to sabotage others in a workplace environment. That ought not be. That's not loving your neighbor as yourself. What ought to be is strengthening and encouraging coworkers because you're not going to be there forever. And let's say you train somebody and you pour yourself into somebody in a work environment, an underling. Um, it's kind of a derogatory term, but, you know, a subordinate. And so you have taken, you have seen the ability in this person. And so you have undertaken to help them and train them and teach them. And let's say they do get promoted above you. Don't be jealous. Be a good subordinate. And, you know, if you've done your job right, they're going to look upon you father, uh, fondly and probably still see you as a mentor, even though they actually have more authority in the business than you do. But it's, it's something that you should do, strengthen and encourage these people, because that is loving your neighbor. Um, you know, how, be the person you'd hope, you hoped, be the person you wish you'd had when you were just coming up for somebody else. You know, if you never had a mentor who really helped you along the way and showed you the ropes, you missed out. But be that person for somebody else. So Moses is, is told to get Joshua ready to take the people into the promised land because he will cause them to inherit the land, which you will see. 
So you're going to go up on the mountain and you're going to be able to look around and you're going to be able to see everything. But it's Joshua who's going to take the next step. So you do everything you can to make Joshua, make sure that Joshua is ready to do what needs to be done. Does that make sense? That's, that's where we are here at the end of chapter 3. It ends with, so we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. So that's where they are. Tomorrow we will pick up at the beginning of chapter 4. So now the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the collect for grace. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day. Defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance, to do always that is righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, folks, that's Squirrel Chatter for today. As you go through your Tuesday, do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here tomorrow for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.